With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. Just want to be free from power Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. This is Jean, and today we're going to hear about one woman's experience with getting through some extremely difficult times, and how she managed to not only hang on to her sobriety, but even thrive as a result of it. In the late spring of this year, forest fire season came early to my home province of Alberta, Canada, likely due to an El Nino effect that caused a short, mild winter and an early, warm, dry spring. Actually, make that a hot, dry spring. And the city of Fort McMurray, Alberta, is nestled into the boreal forest with many precautions in place to protect the city from the natural threat of forest fires. Officials are diligent and watchful since this community of 90,000 people has only one highway in or out. It is otherwise accessible only by air. And firefighters have been battling a blaze in the city's vicinity when suddenly on May 3rd of this year, the wind shifted and the fire grew quickly in size and speed and unexpectedly headed towards the city and devoured its way through everything in its path. On short notice, the entire city had to evacuate down a route that was not designed for those volumes of traffic required to move so many so fast. The rest of the country watched and prayed as a scene unfolded that many describe as apocalyptic. I also watched and prayed knowing that my friend Anne and her family were among those who were fleeing to safety. And this event was six weeks ago, and the family had still not returned to their home, although it was not lost in the fire that destroyed over 2,000 structures in that city. So Anne is here with me now, literally here with me now. She's in my house. She's in my office with me as we're recording this, which we don't normally get to do. Um, Anne lives 10 hours away from me, but because of the evacuation, she is staying just two hours away in a city a little closer. And so we're taking advantage of this chance to see each other in person. So, Anne, welcome to my home. Welcome to Lethbridge, and welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Thanks, Jean. It's great to be back. And you were on an episode a while ago. I think it was Surviving the Holidays. It was Motherhood. Motherhood. It was in May of 2014. And how much sobriety did you have at that time? Uh, six months. So it's been a little while, a little farther, literally a little farther down the road. <laughs> Lots has happened. And just, you know, by way of introduction, I thought we should talk a little bit about 
how our friendship came to be because we met through blogging about sobriety. Yeah. And, um, well, tell about how that was for you, how we connected. We connected. Um, in two th- end of 2013, I um, had been trying for a long time to find a way to reduce my drinking or to quit drinking. And uh, I finally came to a point in December, December 1st, 2013, which is my sobriety date, where I, um, I stopped drinking. And I was sure I was going to do it on my own, and I was at home, and I was, you know, trying really hard to stay together. And as 2014 started, I really began to feel um, alone and lonely. And so some, somewhere in, I, I think it was in Anne Dow Johnson's book, Drink, yeah. she mentioned blogging. I, I believe that's where it was. But anyways, I had never heard of sober blogging, and I went looking for some sort of assistance with someone to help um, give me some ideas of what I should be doing. I hadn't gone to AA. I really hadn't done any sober work outside of having a therapist. And so I somehow came across this blog, Unpickled, and <laughs> and without knowing at all that you are also in Alberta, I sent you an email, and I, um, I really was just reaching out, looking for someone to sort of help give me some... Uh, I think reinforcement that what I was doing was was the right thing, that not drinking was the right thing, because I think at that time I was still really uncertain as to what path I was in, and um, and just some motivation. And so uh, with that, uh, of course, you responded and were a big, um, you know, motivating factor for me at that time to continue looking for more support, be open-minded, and so, and, and in that I also started my own blog. And your blog is called ainsobriety.wordpress.com. And I really loved following your blog over these years because you have really embraced a spirit of calmness and peace. And you always sign your posts off with stillness and peace, yeah. your wish for your readers. And, um, and you didn't have that at the beginning. I mean... Like, not to say you were a mess and you've come a long way, but we were all a mess and we've all come a long way. And it's, it's beautiful to see that. But I, I really see that transformation in you because it served you so well. And I think that you're a really good student in general of life. And so I know that when you find something that works for you, you dig into it and learn lots about it and then share what you've learned, which helps us all. And when I think back onto us meeting um, my, from my experience, I mean, I had been blogging for a little while and had been sober for a little while, but I do specifically remember you writing to me because I remember reading your letter and thinking, I do not know how to help you. Like, I, I just remember thinking like, oh, yeah, you've got a really heavy load and I don't know how to help you, but I do remember saying, I think you need connections. And then I got you to join an online group that I was part of at that time. And there's lots of different online groups out there. If you go to either uh, thebubblehour.com or my blog, um, unpickleblog.com, they both have resource pages that will help you find online support groups. And so the one that you and I were both in at the time, that's where I realized that we were in the same province even. Yeah. And then I was like, hey, remember me? We wrote to each other and let's try and get together. And then 
Um, so in, in those years, we were just counting and we've gone to like seven meetups together yeah. of different types and um, everything from yoga retreats to, we went to a, like an I Can Do It weekend. Hey, how Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer, one of his last performances exactly. was for us. We were very honored. And that was really amazing. Yeah. And um, and we've gotten groups of girls together that kind of live in our area that are sober. And so um, it's really funny because here I was telling you, oh, I think you need some connection. And as it turned out, you know, I needed that connection too. So um, anyway, that's a little bit of our backstory. And um, we don't often record uh, live in the same room like this. So I'm guessing the sound quality isn't going to be quite as good as it is when we're using our usual system. So I hope you'll bear with us because Anne has a really... A powerful story to share and I know whenever something difficult has happened to me in these past weeks I think of Anne and I'm like okay if, if Anne can get through what she's gotten through I can get through this crappy day so I mentioned the fire we talked about it um, I guess I want to take you back to that day um, on May 3rd the day of the evacuation and just tell us about that day which started out pretty normal. You knew there was forest fires in your area. Yeah. Um, but um, you definitely didn't feel that you were in, in danger, I don't think, at the beginning of the day or? No. Take us back to that and tell us no. about that whole experience. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Jean. I will. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it was a Tuesday and um, the day up to that day, I think Sunday there had been a forest fire that had started south of the city, um, which which is quite a distance from where I live, um, across the Athabasca River, which is a, a large river in Alberta. And so, you know, we talked about, oh, there's a fire and it was smoky. And in fact, the day before I had stayed home from work and worked from home because it was really smoky within the city. But Tuesday morning came and it was a beautiful sunny day. And um, I went to work, the kids went to school, uh, we all kind of joked, oh, you know, smoke is all blown away. And, you know, there was a press conference uh, just before lunch, and they had said, you know, the fire is still burning. And they made a very benign comment that it had crossed the river. And so most of us that didn't really mean anything at the time. Um, but I went and got my lunch and returned to my desk. And as we were sitting in our office, it suddenly got very dark within the city. And ash was falling. But... You know, when you live in an area where you do experience smoke from forest fires, which can sometimes be really far away, smoke and ash don't really signify anything. Um, and so, you know, we kind of looked at it and said, oh, the sky is black. And, and I went back to my desk. And at that moment, my husband called and said, I hear that the golf course is on fire. So the golf course in Fort McMurray is on our side of the river. And it's, you know, a five-minute drive from our house. And so, so that rang alarm bells for you. Yeah, immediately I said, you know, that, that's not possible. That's not possible. Like, you know, this fire was far away. And I'd say 30 seconds later, someone came to my door and said, they're evacuating the school. And so at that point, I just said, well, you know, I don't know what's happening. I don't know how much of this is real and how much of this is pretend. Because, of course, we, we do live in a, a, you know, a remote city, but it is... I've lived there for 20 years, and I've never evacuated from there before. So, you know, we wouldn't be ever on standby to leave. And so uh, I left, grabbed my stuff. I left my lunch on my desk, 
I left everything in my office. I grabbed my keys and I went and I went to get my kids from school. And so as I went to get my son from the first school, the closest school, it became very apparent something was going on. People were lining up to get gas. Never but, a good time. <laughs> you know, and of course, I would never have even thought about any of those things. But I lost in my husband, who's a wonderful man, and had filled my gas tank, which he does every day or every couple of days. So I never really look at it. So, you know, I walked to the school and they were keeping the kids in and there was no evacuation call at that point. But I chose to take him from the school. Um, and by the time we got out of the school and started back to our house, they texted me from my other child's school saying, please come get your child at your convenience. <laughs> so, so, at your convenience. So, so you know, for me, um, it still wasn't clear what was happening. There's no um, live media. So everything was either radio, t- Twitter, or Facebook. So it was clear that the fire or maybe the smoke was, was a problem. But, you know, I went and got my daughter. Um, and, and along the way, someone said, oh, they're going to evacuate the city. And I just laughed. Like, I couldn't imagine that that was at all possible. I'm like, oh, no, they're fighting the fire at the golf course. This, that's where this is going to go. So I work nearby the kids, but my husband works at the plant site because Fort McMurray is supporting the oil sand plant. So he's about 45 kilometers away. And he had got... Which, for our American uh, friends, is about a half-hour drive. A half-hour drive away, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so at the time when he called me, he said, I'm going to find a car and get home because normally we take a bus to and from work, so he didn't have a vehicle. So by about 3 p.m., we were, maybe around 3.30, we were all at our house. So we're in our house, we're looking on Twitter, we're, you know, and, and we're sort of, okay, they're evacuating some parts of the city that are south of the river, so on the other side of the river from us. And I guess because we were sitting in our house and it seemed fine, we, we said, okay, let's pack three days worth of stuff and, um, and like, sit here and see what happens. Because this can't be real. And they're not going to evacuate the whole and city. Gonna, and, and so, you know, we really packed, like, three days worth of stuff. So each of us had a little bag. And um, we started watching Twitter and hearing, oh, this is burnt or that is burnt. And, and you know... Of course, it's all hearsay, and then you hear, oh, no, it didn't burn. All the time thinking, you know, this city, this is a real big city. Like, And so the road south was closed because the fire had crossed the road. So the direction for people was that we were all going to go north. The highway goes north to where the oil sands plants are and in. So if you could have gone south, you could have gotten out of the city and gotten to the rest of the Yes. If you go north on the only road that's left, you're basically hitting a dead end. Eventually, you're hitting a dead end. There's there's a couple hours worth of driving, and there's nothing up there, just oil sands plants. There's no gas stations. There's no services. There's just work camps. But they were directing people that way because the fire had closed the highway, leaving the town south. And you're thinking okay, we have to spend a day or two in a camp. Yeah, That's it'll be kind of like a roughing it hotel. <laughs> and so and so we've passed for that. Like I kind of said, let's not take too much stuff. We don't want to bring things to camp. So I took my hair straightener out of my bag and said, I don't want to bring these things to a work camp. And, um, and so 
about an hour went by and, and they hadn't called our area to evacuate. And so we kind of started thinking maybe we would be fine and we would be staying there for the night. And so we turned on the Stanley Cup playoffs and started watching that. And we took chicken wings out to cook. <laughs> and as we were doing this, it got dark in our area. And I suddenly said, what if I never come back to this house? What else should I bring besides my three days worth of stuff? Right. And so at that so point, was, was that the first time you really had the thought that your house might burn down? Might burn down. It was the first time I had a thought that perhaps, because we do live near a wooded area, that perhaps this was actually going to be a real event. So I went and grabbed a box with my kids' scrapbook and their school pictures and their birth certificates that kind of stuff. We had already packed our passports, but this sort of was maybe my next step. My malas, my yoga stuff that I really kind of hold dear. And then I paused and looked around my house and said, if I don't come back here, what else do I want? And I was completely paralyzed. I could not pick anything. I couldn't understand where to begin. And so you know, it was almost like I could take all my clothes and put them in a bin, and it just seemed so outrageous that I didn't. Right. And so we were kind of, so I had my bin, and my and so one of my kids, he, he really wanted to bring his computer, and he'd asked me a couple times, can I pack my computer? And I was like, oh, don't be crazy. And I turned to him and I said, if you want your computer, put it in it, put it in the car. So anyways, at, you know, I still sort of was in denial, and I was thinking we were staying home, and suddenly they called a mass evacuation for the entire city. So we grabbed everything, left the chicken wings on the counter. <laughs> unplugged the deep fryer. It was in the active fryer. Unplugged <laughs> it. And um, as we left, we said we shouldn't leave our truck to burn. And so at the last second, my son and husband got in the truck, and my daughter and I went in the van. I'm going to, do, I'm going to stop you right there, because before we go into this part of the story where you guys are driving out of the city, which is unbelievable, um, I just want to reflect on your sobriety and this yeah. experience, because I know for me, there was a point in my life, you know, at the end of my drinking career, where if you'd asked me what I needed to get through three days, I would have probably been more worried about getting to the liquor store so three boxes of wine than filling up my gas tank. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that we've sort of shared this journey and seeing the changes in you, I'm wondering if there was at any point in that where you really felt like could feel the difference in how you were handling it at this point in your life that you're at versus, you know, a couple of years ago. Absolutely. To be completely honest, I'm sure that a couple of years ago, during that period of time where we didn't know what was going to happen, that I would have had some drinks, right? I'm sure because yeah. we were, you know, we were adamant we weren't going to be evacuated, and I would never have taken the role of driving one of the cars. Right. I never would have. Like that would just not have been. I would have been too anxious, too overwrought, and I mean, yeah, and yeah, too drunk, and too drunk. So. I'm, I'm glad we set that at this point in yeah. the story because what happens next, essentially, you could not have risen to the occasion without your sobriety. No, it's, you know, I mean, I absolutely, that was clear in that moment. 
you know, I mean, my whole life sort of has changed in sobriety to where, you know, I'm able to, what's the critical thing that needs to be done? How do we do it? What's my role? Right. Not who's going to take care of me. Right. Right. And so, you know, so that was, that was it. I was prepared and I was ready to go. And so, you know, we got in the cars and we got through the traffic, which was backed up everywhere. And at the last second as we went to leave our area, the highway south opened. And so my daughter and my son were on their phones talking to each other. And I said, we said, let's go south. So that meant driving through the city. Um, but really it was like we were going to get to Edmonton. We were going to get south to where there's many roads instead of going north where you, you sort of are driving into not a trap, but right. yeah. So, so that was a great move. Um, and we, so we went south and as we came across the river, the city was burning. And so it was a huge inferno of fire to one side of the bridge. And at that moment, I realized that this was an actual event. A life or death. That the fire had burned, that the fire was burning the city, that it was actually real. It wasn't just like something you saw on Twitter. And I really, I have to say at that point, I mean, I'm like, I have to stay in control because I really wanted to panic. And I really regretted that we had split up into two vehicles. I mean, immediately I was like, oh, my God, I can't lose them. This is going to be like a movie where we lose each other and spend the rest of the movie trying to find each other. So, you know, but, of course, you can't, those are just my immediate thoughts as the poor RCMP officer on the road directs us to go north, south on the northbound lane. Both sides of the city have flames, smoke, um, cars are backed up. Cars are deserted everywhere. If so people were running out of gas. People were running out of gas because the traffic had been backed up all afternoon. People were sitting for hours on the highway yeah. trying to get out with the fire closing in on them. Yes. And so, you know, we got through. We got into the city. We drove by the fire. And, you know, we got out of, out of town. And, and along the way, I could see, you know, some of my good friends where they live, I could see the entire neighborhood engulfed in flames. And, um, you know, you got out of the city and suddenly the smoke cleared and the fire was behind you. And now it's just a matter of leaving. And at that point, it was, you knew you were out safely. We knew we were out safely. Didn't know where you were going. Didn't know where Craig and Cooper were. <laughs> Didn't know where your husband and my son were. So then what happened? So we, um, we had made a quick decision. At that point, we still had cell phone coverage. So I called them again and said, we said, okay, we're going to go. There's a lake south of the city. And we said, let's meet there. But I didn't know where it was. So Craig waited for me. We found we were behind them again. Um, and we kept going. And, of course, at this point, there was a lot of traffic because the second evacuation center was off the main highway um, in a small little town. And so we, everyone was heading there. And, again, this is now an even smaller highway that goes in one direction. Right. So we ended another up, bottleneck. Another bottleneck. So we ended up on that road, and I, I lost Craig, and there's no cell phone coverage on that road. So it seemed insane that in this day and age that there's possibly areas where people live <laughs> that doesn't have cell phone coverage in Canada. 
But there are. And of course, it was during the mass evacuation <laughs> that you can find this because it had to be. Um, so anyway, I didn't know what to do. And I was getting pretty hysterical at that point. But, you know, I, my daughter, who's 11, turned 11 while we were here, she kept me calm. Every once in a while, I was like, oh, my God. And she was like, let's make up a funny word to take our mind off this. Oh. And she was awesome. And so um, at one point, I was there, and I didn't know where um, Craig and Cooper were. And they had actually pulled over to the side of the road and waited for me to go by and pulled in behind me. And you didn't know that? I didn't know that. So at some point, we were stopped for a long time in traffic, and they got out of the car and ran up to us and said, we're here, we're here. Oh. So... You know, you don't realize how important it is to kind of have connection and communication as to where people are during those times. But yeah. so yeah, we evacuated to a to a small uh, house on a lake and we spent the night there. And a friend's house. A friend's house. There was a lot of people there, and honestly, at that point, we were all sure the entire city had burned behind us. And you didn't know for a while. Didn't know. We were getting like reports on Twitter. There was a press conference that night, but we didn't have TV coverage, and we, so, so whatever other people were seeing, these videos of people fleeing, um, we didn't see that. And so all I could say was, I, I mean, the fire was everywhere, and I couldn't imagine it didn't burn. So we were all pretty shaken up, and um, we were able to, we spent the night there, and in the morning we thought, you know, we could stay here in some ways, I still thought we were going to go back that weekend. Yeah. And maybe even to just see what had happened. Right. And um, we got up early, and everyone, my husband and his friend said, let's keep going. Let's get off this one road. Let's get away from this area. Which, it, So you have to go down fairly far south to get to a point where you could drive in more than one way. Yeah. And so we did that, and we continued on, and we went to Edmonton, and we eventually continued on and went to Calgary, which is where we're staying. And in the meantime, the place where we stayed that night, the fire burned all the way down there and passed. So those people had to evacuate a second Those time. people all evacuated later that day. So just to impress on our listeners, if you to get a, to get an idea of what this was like, just Google um, Fort McMurray fire car, yeah. and it will bring out videos that people took on their cell phone of driving through these walls of flames. It was hot in their cars. They, you have the panic of trying to escape the fire, but the inability to go very fast, very far. Um, it was unbelievable what you all went through. And I want to jump a little bit forward in the story because where you ended up, you thought you were going to be gone for three days max. It has now been several weeks, and we're almost to two months. Right. And you're staying in a city eight hours away, and a city you grew up in, yeah. as it so happens. Yeah. And closer to me, which makes me happy, because we've had two great visits since you've been there. Um, but I can't imagine the feeling of, I mean, your lunch is still sitting on your desk at work. Yeah. From two months ago. And as far as you know, the chicken wings are still on your counter. The chicken wings are gone now, but <laughs> they, were, they were growing. Axe fires in the garbage. It is all and, um And so you, I mean, it's the stress because it's affected your work. Your kids had to be pulled out of school. You've rented accommodations in another city. You basically uprooted your life on a moment's notice, left your community, left all your support, left your uh, your sober support in terms of the 12-step meetings you were going to 
yoga is a really big part of your life. So um, I think this is really the heart of what we want to talk about right now um, is, is how this affected your sobriety. I was messaging you like crazy because I was so worried for your sobriety. I mean, I was worried for your safety first, most importantly, but um, I really thought like this is going to push people over the edge. And it should be said that you and your husband are both sober. And um, I thought, oh, man, if it doesn't get one, it's going to get the other. And all of a sudden, I realized as I was thinking that, oh, I think this might tell me more about that this is something that I think might make me drink. (laughs) I didn't think I had anything, you know. We're sober no matter what. But it made me realize, oh, maybe I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. Maybe I do have those little things that I think would be enough of an excuse to drink. Did it cross your mind at all to cope with this by numbing? You know, the funny part is when we spent that first night at the cabin, um, the guy said to my husband, well, you know, if you're going to drink, this is, the, this is the night. And, you know, he kind of laughed. But afterwards, he came over to me and said, with all that's going on, the idea that drinking might be an answer to this just doesn't seem like rational. Now, other people had a drink, and, and, but, but really, like, for him, and, and definitely for me, like, I was clearly still in adrenaline mode. Right. So, you know, that first night, no, but when I got to Calgary, I will say, like, there were some thoughts where it was like, oh, my God, I deserve a drink, or, you know, but... Right. but but it was more, but I think more the feeling took over that I can't believe what we just did. Yeah. And the reason that I'm doing it is because I'm aware and stable and in control as much as I can be. Right. And so, you know, I, you know, I can see why people think a drink would make an, would be an answer to some degree, especially if you're not a sober person, right? that you think, oh, I deserve a drink, I need some wine, I, I need this to get through this. But for me, it was like, I wouldn't do anything that would dull my capacity to deal with a crisis because I've just dealt with one. Right. And that feeling of crisis lasts a long time. Right. So even once we got settled, you know, there was still that... Um, real intense adrenaline is still there. Yeah. And so, you know, we got to Calgary and we kind of settled in a little bit and it was very clear immediately for me that my loss of routine was going to be a problem. So, you know, between sobriety, part of my sobriety is mental health care. And so for me, you know, I practice yoga daily. I have a bath most nights. I eat well. I need these things to keep feeling good. Right. And that's what supports me being sober. Right. And that's hard to do when you're living out of a sports bag. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. To be honest, I brought nothing. I didn't bring I brought not even your flat iron. I know, I know. And like I didn't bring any underwear. Like I don't know what I was thinking. Like flat irons and underwear support our sobriety. <laughs> I know. They do. Like, I do this. But, um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of gave myself this few days of sort of feeling lost. And then I said, like, I can't, I can't fall apart. I can't fall apart. Like, my 
general good life requires some framework. And so, you know, I, I kind of floundered a little bit, which yeah. involved a lot of hiding in the house. When you have an, an incident like this, and you're suddenly somewhere where you're not supposed to be, that it feels like everyone else in the world is going on with your life, and you are stuck. And so when you first went to Calgary, you were staying with family members as a guest in their home. Yes. And so their routine went on, but you didn't have a routine. I didn't have a routine. And you didn't also necessarily have autonomy in that house because it wasn't your house. Right. Right? Yeah. You know, it's difficult to go back to your family home. Right. And um, sometimes we return to our old, the old habits, our old roles. You know, we definitely do. And so... Um, very quickly after being there, I will say there was my, the house we were at had uh, lots of booze. There was lots of wine in the basement and we were staying down there. And I went into that room once and it like glowed at me. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I need to do things to help myself feel better. And so, you know, like, because that's not the way I'm going, what would I do? So. As soon as, you know, once we were kind of settled in there, I said, yoga is my main um, avenue of, of familiarity. You know, I, as we were packing the van, I actually took my yoga mat out. And then at the last minute, because, of course, once we took the truck, we had tons of space. At the last minute, I threw it back in. And I'm like, thank God, because that yoga mat is, like, pretty important to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. They do sell yoga mats. In Calgary. I know, but, but it's not that one. This yeah. one is my, you know, if you ask me to close my eyes and visualize a safe place, it would be that map. So I am. Um, I, I, I have to just interrupt and say, Anne and I, before we started recording this, both of us were kind of laughing about how we've both become such yoga fanatics because when we were drinking, neither one of us could stand the thought of like all the stillness and quietness and lack of act of obvious activity involved in yoga. Like to me, it just sounded like torture. Yeah. And so to hear the affection that you have to do yoga mat now no. just makes me laugh. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you think those two are wacky, trust me, you, you may find yourself in the same position at some point because a big part of recovery is learning to be still with yourself. And for a lot of people, that does lead them to either yoga or something like yoga, that sort of body-mind connection. Yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted. No, no. So you needed, okay, so you were staying with family, and you recognized the need to start building routine, and you were starting to realize you weren't going home anytime soon. Right. Um, Yeah. It became pretty apparent early on that we, that um, uh, we wouldn't be going home soon, and um, so we lasted about a week in that Space. And I said, if we're going to stay here, I need my own space. I need my own kitchen. I need my own routine. And I need, you know, I, I like being alone as my introverted self. I need my space where no one's going to ask me questions. And to be honest, like you said earlier, the childhood roles come back quickly. Yeah. And what I have found as part of my sober journey is that I can only stay in those role for a very short period of time before I start to believe them again. Right. And so for me, part of that is that I have the idea that somehow things are all my fault. Really? Yeah. 
Does that sound familiar? Can anybody relate to that? <laughs> and that I am just difficult. And, and, oh, and you're just being difficult. <laughs> and so once I began to see that I was starting to think that it was me, again, I said, this isn't healthy for me. It's not healthy for me. Even if it's going to cost me money, I need to find my own space. And you actually reached out through our online group at that point, too. You sort of developed a small private group of sober women, sort of a small tribe of sort of trusted advisors, and we all bounce things off each other. And, and you actually posted on our group at that time and said, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm thinking. And you, you did sort of ask everyone's input, didn't you, at that point? Not that you didn't want to make that decision yourself, but I think... I think that to hear um, feedback from people whose sobriety you trusted and who knew had your best interests at heart and who you knew didn't think you were the problem, right? right. And um, and then you made your own decision after that. But it was really, I was really happy to see you post that and know that you were starting to think your way out of this. Yeah. And take care of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, that's the great thing about that kind of group, right? Because yeah. I think they understand, um, well, of course, most of them know me and are also all sober, but they understand that you do need to put your own mental health comfort ahead of things. And that the idea that for appearances that you should stay with your family because they're there mm-hmm. just aren't always the right answer. Right. And so, you know, so I... Um, I took that advice, and, and, and you know, I'm, I like looking for approval, and, <laughs> and it's nice to have someone agree with you. Yeah. Um, and we found, so we found a place to live in Calgary, and uh, it's like an awesome place. We overlooked the river. It it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's not furnished. And so I have to say, so the, the other thing that really has been a moving ahead point for me in this journey is the... Um, acceptance or the, to ask for help. And so, you know, when people, if you know me from my blog, I often ask for help. People want to help you. It, it helps the helper. But when you're in the situation, I mean, I'm usually the helper. I'm not usually the one asking for help. Right. Especially in this kind of circumstance, right, right. where I have no, no um, furniture, I have no dishes, I have no nothing. Right. And you've yeah, never been homeless before. I've never been homeless before. And, you know, and to some extent, I kind of stood up and said, well, I have money and I'll just pay for things. But at some point, it's also, we're out of our house for an extended period of time. How much is this going to, where are we going to end up? Right. And so I went to one of our evacuation centers um, and the people were awesome. And, you know, I went in and I'm like, well, I don't really need anything, but perhaps I might. And one of the ladies kind of took me aside and said, you know, we're here to help you. And when you let us help you, it's helping us. And I, and I thought, oh, my, I, I believe that so deeply, but it was so hard in that, that circumstance to do. But once I sort of just let it go and let her help me, it like took a really big weight off of me. Oh. Yeah, and so, you know, they, at the time I left that day, they had two beds in my van, brand new beds, like wrapped in plastic, furniture, or um, dishes, cutlery, like, I went home with all kinds of stuff, we have our, like, 
we, my, you know, our makeshift house that I laugh, there's a Lamborghini parked in the parking lot beside me. <laughs> oh, you're in the nice part of oh, town. Oh, my God. And, and, you're, and you're glamping. Oh, we're totally <laughs> glamping. We're totally glamping. And, and, um, but, you know, it's a beautiful spot, and it's quiet. Yeah. It's quiet. It's, you know, the river is peaceful. The kids have a space. We've kind of settled in. And finally, after, you know, probably in the last few weeks, I went back to work. We have an office that I can work in temporarily in Calgary. And I found a yoga studio nearby where we are. And I created a routine. And that ability to create my routine, to not add too many things to it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I finally feel like I no longer feel like an alien who's been transplanted into another city. Yeah. But I kind of feel like I am going to enjoy parts of this. Finally. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time in May, people would say to me, consider it a vacation. Just pretend you're on vacation. And, you know, the reality is, is that's denying that you've been going through a traumatic event. Right. Because we weren't on vacation. We weren't choosing to be there. Right. And that's almost akin to the, you know, what we on the show call the, the biggest lie ever, which is everything is fine and I'm okay. Exactly. It's pretending everything is fine. Everything is not fine. No. Um, but you can still do your best in yeah. that situation and make the best of it. So um, let's talk for a minute about what you're doing specifically to support your sobriety. Um, you're in touch with an online group. Yes. And you blog. And I blog. Um, there are meetings in that city. Have you been going to any recovery group meetings? No. But your husband has put that into his routine, right? Yeah. So my husband has, and and um, to be honest, like I attend 12-step meetings sometimes, but it's not really my path. I work the 12 steps through a book on my own. Yeah. I've never had a sponsor. I really like the meetings as a place to go and hear people's stories and yeah. support sobriety in that way. And I think it's an awesome resource for people. And I think everyone should at least go to a meeting because just that in and of itself is kind of, I always feel kind of badass when I go and show up at a meeting. <laughs> like somehow I fit in. And, but um, it always feels good to be among you know, your tribe. You know, yeah. and, it, and, and I mean, in, in Fort McMurray, there's pretty diverse people at meetings, right? Like I don't meet a lot of like professional women who would be like me. But I meet all kinds of people. And um, so um, in Calgary, Craig has found a men's only meeting that he, his friend goes to with him. And so, um, you know, he did that. And, and really, I thought about, I looked at meetings and I, I said to him, maybe we go together to a meeting one day. But I've found my own kind of peace at the moment. Yeah. And... I have, like, I went to a meditation retreat, which had been planned earlier. Right. So, you know, I've, I've found a different um, supportive um, community, mostly through yoga. And also, you took advantage of some therapy that was available um, for evacuees. Yeah. Right? Can you talk about that? So, I actually didn't use what was available for evacuees. I went through my own work program. Oh, okay. But I did. I did use, I did um, find a therapist. And then actually I took it a step further and in Calgary I found a therapist who does different things, not just the standard sort of CBT. 
Exactly. So I would normally do more CBT talk therapy. And and because my anxiety has seriously ramped up here, um, I started looking for someone who would maybe deal with PTSD. Because, you know, if my normal anxiety is at a five, it's probably at a seven, and I, it hasn't really gone down. Right. And so, no breaks from that for weeks on end. Yeah. And so, you know, I said, maybe, maybe it's time to look out, out elsewhere. And so I have found this therapist who deals specifically with PTSD and um, anxiety. And so I've been working with her, and tomorrow I'm going to try a hypnotherapy session. You know, and maybe this will be an option or an opportunity to look into um, therapy to reduce anxiety on a global level instead of coping mechanisms, which is what my normal therapy would be based. So in a way, I I feel like from everything you've told me today and, you know, just in other discussions that this experience and some of the work that you've done to keep you going through this time has helped you kind of peel back another layer of onion, right? You know, whenever they say, like, you have to you through chaos, you find change, I mean, I'm going to take it as that this is what, because that's the opportunity here. Yeah. Right? It's given me a different place to live, and so I've taken things a step further in yoga and found a different form of yoga that I've always wanted to do. That's a much more self-guided, self-requirement. And the therapist, too, might be different. And so, you know, I could have sat at home and moped and worried and cried and maybe turned back to drinking or some other non-positive coping mechanism. Yeah. But instead, I said, I'm like, you know, here we are. Here's, the, here's what it is. What can I do? What, what is there that might help me? move to the good side instead of maybe reverting back to things that I that might be harder to undo. Let's um in the in the time we have left, um, I want to hear what lies ahead for you. Your neighborhood survived the fire, uh, but but the city is um, a long way from being I'm using air quotes normal. Um, there's significant ash and smoke damage everywhere. Parts of the city are gone, and the city's infrastructure is unreliable at this point, right? So very much still a city in crisis. Um, but you will be returning yeah. at some point. So talk to us a little bit about what lies ahead, what going home might look like for you, and how what, um, what new things you're taking back with you to build as you go forward. Right. Um, so, yes, we will go back. Um, our plans to go back um, later in July. Um, our house probably will be cleaned and ready to return to sooner. But um, the one thing I kind of decided along this is that it's going to be hard to go back. It's, things are burnt. Lives have been changed drastically. Lots of my friends have lost their houses. And so I expect the return is also going to be emotionally and uh, shaky. And so, you know, it, it took me at least a month of being in Calgary to be able to just sort of feel back into my comfort zone. And so, you know, I'm not ready to shake that yet. And so I want to make sure that our stuff is back as it should be. The house is clean. Things are safe in our area. The water is fine. And that's all well underway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
you know, we'll take the, the month of July, we'll do some fun things, we'll kind of maybe begin to make it shift into the idea that it's a little bit more fun and do a little bit of vacation because, of course, the kids have been through this as well. Right. Um, and, and although they seem okay, uh, you know, that will be, a, it, returning home will be an interesting thing for them as well. Right. Um, and then, you know, I, I look forward to going back, like, I thought at one point about taking some trauma yoga training because there was something in Calgary. And in the end, I stepped back and decided, you know, I'm still the traumatized. Right. You <laughs> don't need to be the healer. I don't need to be the healer right now. But you have to remember that every person in the city has gone through this experience in a different in different ways. Yeah. So, you know, we will we, we have like a shared experience that we've all will all have dealt with differently. Um, and so I do look forward to going back and teaching yoga and, you know, being in that supportive community again. Um, but I really have really found that Calgary has embraced us and, uh, and they've been awesome. Like people have really come out, come out from everywhere and been super supportive of Fort McMurray people across the country, across the world, you know, and that, that's really, it's amazing because, even sometimes when I look at it, I can't believe that this has happened, right? Yeah. It's just such a huge, big thing. And, um, yeah, and, and it could be anywhere, right? And it'll take a long time to heal the community and restore the community, even after things are back to normal. Um, I have to think that the cumulative effect of 90,000 people driving through those flames leaving yeah. their cars. Um, not everyone was as lucky as you that their husband or their spouse or their loved one made it back from the camp in time to leave with them. Some people had to go north while others went south. So um, all of that will resonate um, throughout the community and it will take a long time to heal from that. Yeah. And so do you feel like the um, some of the new therapy and some of the new perspective that you have going home will help you help yourself and help others and yes I d definitely plus you know once you go through like a major event once I guess you kind of say I know I can mm -hmm. right so um in the last few years like we've had a close family member die mm -hmm. we've had a big flood in our basement of sewage those were like <laughs> you all just got that cleaned <laughs> up when so those you know the, the truth is is the, the thing sobriety has taught me is every small victory helps with the next challenge, right? So if it's getting to the party one night, that might be what helped me deal with the flood, right? Every small victory is worth celebrating. And so, you know, those challenges, well, they sucked at the time, and I would have liked to have stomped my feet and said, why is this happening to me? And maybe I did a bit. We moved on. And none of them were a reason for me to say, screw this, I'm going to drink, or any of those things. And so this has just been another circumstance like that where sobriety is my platform and it's the foundation, and especially with the husband who's sober, for our entire family's life. That's amazing. I, it's just, it, it, I want to say it's inspiring, but that doesn't even quite grasp it. I mean, to me, I just feel like I'm looking at a powerful truth in motion in what your family is living right now and I'm, I'm very grateful um, for the opportunity to witness that and very grateful that you're here sharing your story with us. I want to ask you sort of by way of last question, um, you just said some very encouraging things, but I wonder 
if you have some, like what would be sort of your top three or five things you would suggest someone consider doing if they're going through something, a major upheaval? I mean, it's like someone took your purse and dumped it on the floor. Someone took your life and dumped it on the floor. Yeah. Um, that could be a fire. That can be, you know, losing your job. It can be, you know, any kind of circumstance that catches you off guard like that. So after what you've been through, what would sort of be your go-to steps to rebuild? I would say ask for help. Number one, whatever it is, don't do it on your own because it's very hard to actually see your own circumstance by yourself. Ask for help. Look at your routine and say, what is in my routine that actually helps support me? Mm-hmm. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that you return to the gym every day or do, because sometimes those are just things that you do. But find the things that actually help make your life easier. And, you know, that's it, what makes life easier right now. Use that as kind of your guiding point, which is... Unless it's alcohol. Oh, oh, yeah. It doesn't make life easier. It makes life easier. Or drugs. No, no. But, but you know, maybe, but... Bath, have a bath, go to yoga, sleep. You know, if you sleep instead of going to the gym. Like, really ask yourself, what are the things that would support me? Be, what's the kind thing, the gentle thing? Mm-hmm. And move forward with that. Because people do want to help you, and once you let them it does just open the doors for you to help yourself. So, Oh, perfect. That is perfect. Well, we could probably talk for another three hours. In fact, we did talk for almost three hours before we started recording, so we're going to run out of voice here pretty soon. I think with that, we'll sign off. Thank you so much. Oh, it was awesome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I love it. And um, I know that our listeners will be better for having heard your story, too. Um, and blog where she talks about her life in recovery and also your experiences with evacuation, aimsobriety.wordpress.com. And uh, my blog is on pickledblog.com, and you will find a resource link on there that's got lots of links that you can check out, as well as my story, which isn't nearly as interesting as Anne's right now. Uh, also ask you to check out uh, the Bubble Hour website. It is thebubblehour.com. You can email me at thebubblehour at gmail.com if you have show ideas or would like to be a guest on the show. And also, if you would like to support this podcast, if it's helped you out, check out shiningstrong.org. There is a link on there for how you can help support this show by supporting the resources that support us. So that's it for now. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Take good care. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.